Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. So our starting passage um, last week um, and this week, our kind of home base, and for the next time I speak in a few weeks, is going to be Luke chapter 6 and verses 12 to 16. And it's that separating out of the 12 from the larger group of disciples, the, from the multitude. Um, and we saw last week kind of the three layers of Jesus' followers that were created at this point. Um, there were always the multitudes that, just, that were pressing upon him when he was in Galilee. Um, always around him, not giving him space to, to breathe. He would have to go out in the middle of the night and find a, a, a spot to pray when no one else was around. Um, just uh, multitudes around him. And then uh, from the multitude, there were those followers that had already left everything. Um, there were those followers that, um, you know, that just by, um, by chance, whenever they could, they would be around the multitude. Um, and then there were those that had given up everything. Like at that point, um, we had seen just in Luke chapter 5, we had seen Peter give up everything and leave everything at that amazing, the draught of fishes that they caught. Um, when Jesus had them cast their nets just carelessly in the middle of the day when the, no fish would be found anywhere near the surface where they'd be able to net them. Um, and they caught the biggest, the biggest batch of fish. They hit the lottery, um, and he left the winnings on the shore um, to follow Jesus. Um, so there were those in, among the multitude that had already left everything. And then here, Jesus calls 12. So Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve whom also he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon called Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which was also the traitor. So from last week in the introduction, we talked about how these 12 were ordinary, and if anything, they were mostly from the lower class, the Galileans. Um, farming, agricultural, fishing community, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, about as far from Jerusalem as you could get in Israel at the time. There was only one disciple that was from the Jerusalem area, from Judea, and that was Judas Iscariot, um, outsider in the group from the beginning. Right. Um, there's we see that although these were ordinary people, we talked about how through church history, they've been lifted up um, as these mythical people, um, stained glass windows, halos over their head. Um, we read through the Gospels. Mostly we read their failures. We read how they stepped on each other's toes. They would even overstep 
the Lord Jesus at times. Um, they lacked faith, and, and we'll talk about those things that they lacked and how Jesus um, became their strength. There, there are no intrinsically qualified people for the Lord's work. No one is born just, just ready for the Lord's work. No one is any more valuable to God because of where they were born or who their family is. Even, even the list of the characteristics of deacons and elders that we find in the epistles, is that any more than God expects from all believers? Are those things any more than what any one of us would want in our life, whether we're called to that office or not? Um, even those characteristics, we know God deliberately over and over again throughout human history has chosen the humble, the lowly, the meek, and the weak. So that there is no doubt about the source of the power when the world is turned upside down by their lives. Um, these men, they certainly did, although we say humble, and they certainly did struggle with pride and arrogance, selfishness. But through the power of God and the gift of the Holy Spirit, all of them but Judas Iscariot ended up being driven by a passion for the glory of Christ. These were those 12 ordinary people. Before we look into any of them individually, let's look at the teacher. Let's look at the Lord Jesus. In Luke 6, verse 12, there's, there's so much that we can learn about the Lord Jesus in this one verse. And it came into pass in those days that he went into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Jesus prayed a lot, and it's especially recorded in Luke's gospel. Um, the first five chapters we find a few times he went into a mountain to pray. He went into the garden to pray. He went into the, the wilderness to pray. Um, he would seclude himself to pray. Um, he did this so much that when Judas covenanted to betray him, he knew exactly where to find him, even though Judas was missing the entire Two, last two-thirds of the meal. He knew where Jesus would be at night in a garden praying. It was his custom. It's what he did. We talked last week about what led to this point. Um, in Luke chapter 6 and in the last part of Luke chapter 5, we just see the hostility start, start growing. The first mention in Luke's gospel of the Pharisees and the scribes comes right within range of this passage. I think it's 517. We, we find the first mention of, of the, the chief accusers of the Lord Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes. Um, we mentioned last week, we're about 18 months from the crucifixion in time at this point, a year and a half. Jesus' ministry, is, and, and he knows all things. It's about half gone. The time of his public ministry is about half gone. And there's still these huge crowds and multitudes following him 
many of whom he knew the heart of men, many of whom, if he really spoke the truth, they would leave. And right now he needs to train 12 men to carry on after he goes. He knew who he would pick. I think he knew who he would pick before he went into the mountain to pray. I think when he went into the mountain to pray, he was praying for those men. The words that it uses there, um, and it just I'll just do the last phrase of verse 12. There's a lot in the whole verse, but for time we'll look at, and continued all night in prayer to God. Um, the to continue all night in something. The the Greek word, I'll try it out here. Um Dianukteru. Dianukteru. It means enduring through a task all night. It's one word that means enduring through a task all night. It is not a word that is ever used in reference to sleeping all night. That sleeping is not enduring through a task. This word means that you're tasked with something, someone who is tasked with something that takes all night. Toiling through the night is how it's translated in other first century Greek texts. Um, Toiling through the night. He toiled all night in prayer. Remaining awake through the darkness until morning, persevering in prayer the whole time. Another note that we don't see in English, but um, uh, reading a, a commentary by John MacArthur, it translates the Greek phrase literally at the end there, um, not continued all night in prayer to God, but in the prayer of God. Interesting, an interesting little change. Um, the, the mystery of Jesus praying, um, that Trinitarian communion. His, Jesus' prayers are the very prayers of God. Um, the mystery of his humanity and his deity brought together in prayer. Um, that humanity, the human side, is that toiling all night, staying awake all night. When you're already tired. In his deity praying the very prayer of God. These 12, these 12 men that he was praying for. Would now be with him. um, Until that time in the upper room and on the way to the garden. And the rest of his ministry, if we look from this point in many of the gospels. It appears he's now thinning the crowd. He he starts to to speak difficult things to understand, difficult things to take in, um, the things that are going to thin this crowd. In other Gospels, we have at this point now the feeding of the 5,000, which we know he feeds the 5,000 and goes across the lake. Well, he walks on water. His disciples go across the lake. They end up on the other shore, and when the multitudes at that point get there, he immediately thins the crowd. He he tells them exactly what is in their hearts that they didn't want to hear. 
they don't want to make him king because he's the Messiah. They want their bellies filled. They don't want to work anymore. They work hard for their, for their bread, for their fish. They work hard. They don't want to work anymore. And he gave them food. They didn't want to hear that. They left. He, was, he started thinning the crowd. This choice, um, the rest of his ministry is now seems focused on these 12. Um, or those disciples that had left everything um, and not the multitudes. He sovereignly selects these men, sovereignly worked in these men, sovereignly would work through these men, that they would bear fruit and their fruit would remain. Um, that's a lot to pray for. Um, we mentioned last week also why 12. Um, there's a lot of commentaries on why 12. Um, definitely symbolic importance, the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the new covenant. Um, we don't think of replacement. We're not replacing Israel. Israel has their promises forever. Um, but at this point, Israel was apostate. The Judaism of this time, of Jesus' time, was a full-on corruption of the faith of Abraham. Um, they had abandoned divine grace for this very workspace rituals and religion. Um, the, Jesus called out the hypocrisy, the self-righteous works, man-made regulations, and meaningless ceremonies. It was based on that physical descent from Abraham that Jesus would challenge. Um, not based on the faith of Abraham. Now he calls 12 apostles, new leadership for this new covenant. In Luke 22, 29 and 30, um, we, don't, we won't turn there, but that's where Jesus says that his disciples would be judge over the 12 tribes of Israel. The significance to those that were around and saw Jesus chose 12 that significance would be loud and clear. Now in verse 13, it says, When it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. The two words that get used of representatives of important people um, that are now a big part of Christianity, um, apostolo and angelos. Apostolo um, conveys an ambassador, a delegate, an official representative. Um, angelos, where we get the word angel from, is a messenger. They're different, different stations, different offices. Um, apostolo actually had, and obviously we know it's a transliteration of the word, um, just we get apostles. Um, they didn't bother making a new English word, but there was an Aramaic word, and the Aramaic word um, was shalia. The shalia was an official representative of Jesus' time. It was used of a proxy for the Sanhedrin. We know Israel was a, was a big territory. 
And people popped up all the time that would claim to be Messiah. And those 70 people couldn't go everywhere whenever someone claimed to be the Messiah. They would send a proxy. They would send a Shalia. And the, and the Shalia had, um, if there was any religious dispute of any kind or a dispute of the law, the Sanhedrin didn't want to leave their comfortable homes around Jerusalem. They would send a proxy, someone they were training um, in their place, but they had all the powers of the whole Sanhedrin. Um, the other um, traditional writings and oral traditions, one, the, the Mishnah, um, recognized the role of the Shalia. It was in there. Um, and it defined the Shalia as the one who is sent by the man is as the man himself. The Shalia. And they would have recognized in that day that Jesus was choosing them to be Shalias for himself. When he sent them out, when he sent them out, they were representing him. They weren't messengers. They were doing his work. Now the task. In, in Mark's version of this event, in chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. And notice that the pulling in of the 12 and then the sending out. That they might be with him, that he might send them to preach. And the training of the teacher. We'll look at some things that they definitely lacked and how Jesus, how, how Jesus mended that. And they lacked spiritual understanding. We see that many times. Jesus says, oh, you're so slow to understand. Um, they lacked spiritual understanding. He kept teaching. He kept teaching all the way until his ascension. Um, I, I remember the first time it was pointed out to me. Um, we, we, celebrate, um, we celebrate the resurrection Easter Sunday. And a lot of times on Easter Sunday, we look all the way to the ascension. From the resurrection to the ascension. But Jesus was still around around almost 4th of July. Um, he, was, he was around for a couple of months. Still teaching them. He teach them all the way up to the ascension. Uh, they lacked humility. He modeled servanthood. He washed their feet. Humbled himself even unto the death of the cross. They lacked faith. And he did and kept doing miracles. Um, especially... Um, a few times it's mentioned he did a miracle in the presence of his disciples, even waiting for them just to get close enough to see it happen. To, so that they could see it happen in the presence of his disciples. So their faith would be strengthened. They lacked commitment. He would go into the mountains to pray and intercede for them. They definitely lacked power. And he sent the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt. And there was no doubt in the world if we go through the record in the Acts. 
there was no doubt that these men should not be able to do the things they were doing. And over, it was just pointed out that they had been with Jesus. There was no doubt that this power was not coming from them. So now let's get into this list of these men and look at who they are. Um, there's four lists. There's four lists, uh, Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 to 4, Mark chapter 3, verses 16 to 19, Luke chapter 6, 13 to 16, and Acts chapter 1 and verse 13. Obviously, the one in Acts is 11, not 12, because Judas um, had died. They all have a similar order. At first glance, you may see that they have a different order, but in all... In all four of the lists, there's three groups of four. You can separate them into the same three groups of four. It's interesting. Um, Peter is always the, the, the first. And you have Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Or Peter, James, John, Andrew. Um, that It's always those four first. And Peter is always in the front. Then you have another group of four that the beginning is always Philip. So it's like there's these three groups. You have the first group of four, Peter, is in front. And so Peter, James, John, Andrew, or Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And then the, that fifth one is always Philip. Um, and the ones behind him are always the same. So it's always Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. Or Philip, Thomas, Matthew, Bartholomew. Um, it's always those four, and it, Philip is always the head of that group. And then the next group is always started with James, the son of Alphaeus. So after we get that second group of four, then James, the son of Alphaeus, is always in front. Judas is always last. Um, but sometimes um, those in the middle, um, Simon the Zealot and Judas the brother of James, and sometimes Judas the brother of James is given a completely different name, um, probably later in life refused to go by the name Judas, would go by his surname Thaddeus or his middle name Labius, or he would not go by the name of Judas. Um, but we'll start at the top and we'll start with Peter. Um, here it says Simon, whom he also named Peter. Simon was a very, uh, we know the name Mary for a woman was very common. Um, so many Marys, it's hard to keep track of. Well, there's seven Simons in the Gospels. Just in the Gospel accounts, there's seven Simons. The Lord gave this one a new name. Um, but he didn't just call him a new name. He, he gave it to him. No one had called him Peter or Cephas before the Lord did. It wasn't a nickname that he already had. Um, the Lord gave it to him. And the also shows something as well. Uh, it says, whom he also named Peter. Sometimes he called him Simon. And when he was really, really, really rebuking him, he called him Simon Barjona. 
He went all the way back to the beginning before he met him. So we've heard it a lot that Peter means rock, Cephas means rock. Um, Jesus gave him this name at their first face-to-face meeting in John 1.42. The first face-to-face meeting with Jesus. Jesus says, Simon Barjona, you will be called Cephas. I'm going to call you Peter. I'm going to call you the rock. Um, who was Simon Barjona? Simon Barjona, from what we can gather, was brash, but vacillating back and forth. He was that, that, that vacillating man, tossed to and fro, um, undependable, rush into things. We can see when Jesus would call him Simon, it was, he rushed into something. He would be the first one in and the first one out. He would be leading the charge, but the first to retreat. No great promises we see him make and no follow through. Cephas or Peter is who he should be. It's who Jesus knew he should be. And it's a really good study to look at when Jesus calls him Simon and when he calls him Peter. The gospel writers go back and forth. John, his best friend and business partner who knew him forever, he pretty exclusively in his gospel calls him Simon Peter. John, John sees both sides of him all the time. He sees that natural man and he sees the spiritual man. He's his best friend, his confidant, his business partner. You know, it's interesting. Um, in the first few chapters of Acts, we see Peter and John working together. Zero words recorded of John. They walk everywhere together. No words of John recorded. Peter does all the talking um, when they're together. It, I came across a story. Um, this whole nickname thing reminded me um, of something that I had heard in the 1980s Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, they had a pitcher. Oral Hershiser. Tommy Lasorda was their manager, and he, he caught a glimpse of Oral Hershiser in spring training one year when Oral was just a young man in the minor league system. And he saw the power that he threw with and the accuracy. They saw that, that pinpoint he could paint the corners of the plate. Um, but he would seemingly just give in to hitters too often. Tommy Lasorda nicknamed him affectionately Bulldog because he was anything but a Bulldog. But Tommy Lasorda kept calling him the Bulldog. And eventually, Oral Hershiser became the Bulldog where he would mow down hitters. He would never give in to a hitter. The more Tommy Lasorda called him Bulldog, the more Oral Hershiser acted like a Bulldog. Another interesting fact about Oral Hershiser, he was World Series MVP. And on a late night talk show, they pointed out, they showed some images of him, so the video of him, and it, um, the host said, you're talking to yourself. What are you saying to yourself? And, uh, and he responded, he said, you probably wouldn't know. Um, you've heard um, how, great how Great Thou Art, it's a hymn. And I just always sing it to myself when I'm on the mound, just to remind me of who's really in charge, um, who really controls things. This is an interesting note about Oral Hershiser. Um, but 
in the same way Tommy Lasorda molded Oral Hershiser into who the pitcher he wanted him to be through a nickname, the Lord Jesus could just gently chide or commend Simon Peter by using just one of those names. Um, two contexts that the, the gospel writers, apart from John, two contexts in which they use Simon. Um, always, when talking about his house, always when talking about the secular things, his house, his family, um, you know, when it mentions his mother-in-law, it's Simon's wife's mother. Um, when it talks about his business, how John was partners with Simon. Also, that the natural man and Simon's things, just that natural secular man. And then we also see the unregenerate Simon. Um, in Luke chapter five and verse five, just before this, when they're in the when they're in the boat and they're they're complaining, um, and um, in Luke chapter 5 and verse 5, um, we see Simon. Um, before they let down their nets, he was Simon. It says, And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we've toiled all night, have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. But then in verse 8, verse 8, it's when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. But at the beginning of the same story, they call him Simon. He's in unbelief. Um, I'll do it, but I don't really know what you're asking me to do here, Lord. But when he sees it and he believes, now he's Simon Peter. I mentioned how John always calls him Simon Peter. Um, in his second epistle, he introduces himself as Simon Peter. Jesus' nickname for him became his surname. He just took it on. Um, on the shore in John 21, though, Jesus calls him Simon Barjona all three times. But a few weeks later, in Acts, it's Peter who stands up to preach at Pentecost. He is the un, undoubtedly the leader of the disciples, of the apostles, of this group. Undoubtedly the leader. Um, what makes Peter a good leader? What, what did the Lord Jesus mold in him? That the natural man, Simon, it was weakness. But with the Holy Spirit and with the Lord leading, it's a strength. Um, first of all is inquisitiveness. Peter asks more questions in the Gospels than any of the other disciples combined. That all the disciples combined ask less questions than just Peter. Um, it's interesting. He also answers more questions or offers answers more than any of the other disciples. Um, this wanting to know the answer and and giving your own answer, probably in full knowledge that it's incomplete or has holes in it, is something that those that are that are leaders do. Um, especially, I notice it in a classroom. The students who learn the most are the ones that answer the most questions out loud. 
Because when the teacher hears the thinking of the student, whether it's wrong or right, the teacher can make corrections to the thinking. That's why the, your math teachers always ask you to show your work. Not because they thought you cheated, but because just in case you have it wrong, they can fix the mistake. If they see the trail of your thinking, they can fix the mistake along the way. There's many reasons why someone may have a wrong answer. Peter's wrong answers were wrong for lots of different reasons, but he offered them and the Lord could fix them. That inquisitiveness and that initiative combined. We see him throw the, the scripture reading that, um, that Bill read. We see him throw himself out there both times. Both times. Um, any of the disciples could have answered that question, who do you say that I am? In the garden, we see his, him taking initiative in the wrong way. When he just rose... Uh, what did he think? There, there were hundreds of soldiers. He was going to decapitate every one of them. The first one he got to, he just got his ear. Um, completely missed. Uh, that inquisitiveness and that initiative. Um, we also see his involvement. Wanting to be just as close to the Lord Jesus as he could, even if it seemed impossible, he jumps out of the boat. He asks that question. He says, Lord, if it's you, just tell me to come. And he said, come, Peter. Come. And he jumped out of the boat and started walking on the water. Even the story of his denials. He went in there. It was just him and, and his buddy, John. Um, we know John followed as much as he could. But Peter went in there. No one else was, had that misplaced courage. Courage, misplaced courage. But no one else had that to go there. Everyone else went and hid. They didn't put themselves in that compromising position. He did. He failed miserably. But he did. Um, he had that, the raw material, just that, that, that personality that although in the Gospels would get him in a lot of trouble apart from, apart from the Lord Jesus, and without the Holy Spirit, it got him in a lot of trouble. With the Holy Spirit, God used it to help lead this group of disciples after the Lord Jesus left. And the Lord Jesus used experiences to shape him. I just want to look at a few. Um, we read one. Just that it, Matthew puts them right after the other. And just think about the experience that Peter had, that high of realizing that the God of heaven could reveal something to a fisherman. That the God of heaven would speak to the heart of an ordinary man to just realize that truth. That the God of heaven can speak to my heart. But then, right after, so can Satan. 
God will reveal truth to our hearts, but we are also vulnerable to Satan. On the night of Jesus' arrest, he realized that all the promises that he made and all his efforts to follow Jesus where Jesus told him he shouldn't follow, all that effort cannot keep one from failing. What, what could have helped? Watch and pray. Watch and pray. So we'll look at some of those. His character. How did the Lord shape his character through these experiences? Um, I, I do want to turn to one of these stories, and it's in Matthew chapter 17. So let's look at this story of it's just the Lord and Peter. Matthew chapter 17. Um, it's after the transfiguration. This one is just the Lord and Peter. And it starts Matthew 17 and verse 24. When they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? This is the temple tax. Verse 25, he said, Yes. But maybe a little unsure. He volunteered an answer. But a little unsure. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus, um, the King James says, prevented him. Um, better reader translation saying, before Peter could even ask him, before Peter could, could make sure that he was right, Jesus prevented him saying, what thinkest thou, Simon? And he called him Simon. This question, unsure of who your Lord is, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Their own children or strangers? Whose house is the temple? Whose house is it? It's the Lord's. Who is Jesus? The Son of God. Do princes pay taxes? No. Right? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, of strangers. And Jesus said, then the children are free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. Go thou to the sea, cast a hook, take up a fish that first comes up. When you've opened his mouth, you will find a piece You'll find a piece of money. Take and give unto them for me and thee. So there was a certain coin um, that, would, that would have paid. I think it was like two of something. Um, I, I didn't write down the, the currency, but it was two of something was the temple tax. There was a coin for four of that thing. So there could have been one coin in that fish's mouth, and actually that, that type of fish 
is now renamed St. Peter's fish. Um, if you were to go to the Mediterranean, um, that kind of fish is called St. Peter's fish. Um, it's the only fish that they would have caught that you can catch just on one cast with a hook. Um, so it's probably the fish that he would have caught to bring this up um, that would have um, this, um, this piece of money in it that could have paid the temple tax for him and Peter, for the Lord Jesus and for Peter. It's clear that the Lord Jesus could have opted out of this temple tax. Jesus, Peter, Jesus leads Peter to make that, to have that understanding. It, it, heavenly authority would have, could have caused Jesus to opt out. He was not obligated to pay it. The miracle demonstrates to Peter Jesus' absolute sovereignty over the entire world. That he would lead a fish in the Sea of Galilee. He would lead out of that lake that was their livelihood, the single fish in the lake that had swallowed this coin, lead it to Peter's baited hook, the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus to do this. Definitely the very Son of God still pays the temple tax. Human submission. Peter explains it in 1 Peter 2, 13 to 18. And we know that submission, submission to earthly authority. We think... And I know in, in this time here in America, here in, in, in our culture, do we take more, do we take more care and worry more about our rights as citizens of America? Do we worry more about those rights than our responsibilities as citizens of heaven? Which one are we more careful to protect? Our witness for God or our rights as citizens of, of a nation that is doomed? We should take more care for our responsibilities as citizens of heaven. The Lord Jesus did. The Lord Jesus paid a temple tax for his own house. The, the Lord taught him restraint. And we see that, that whole night in the garden, from the garden to the courtroom, Peter lacked restraint in his words, in his actions. We sing the song, be careful little mouth what you say. He didn't. Be careful little feet where you go. He didn't. He, he went where Jesus told him not to go. He said the things the Lord Jesus told him not to say. Um, even just, he just did everything wrong. And then when he, should have, when he should have pushed forward, when he should have stayed up to pray, he fell asleep. And the Lord Jesus called him out specifically for sleeping. Called him Simon. 
the just reading through that whole Simon and Peter thing, I, every time now I, I read the Lord call him Simon, I cringe for I cringe for Peter. How he must have felt like, please call me Peter. I just I, I want to do something right. You feel that with him. And in the garden, Simon, you're sleeping. Um, and now every time I, I think of that passage, I think of First Peter 4, 7, um, where Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Watch unto prayer. It, like he learned that lesson and, and he wants to teach it. For him in the Lord Jesus's ministry, when the end of all things was coming, he slept. But he tells people, I learned that lesson in your life when it seems like the end of all things is at hand. Watch unto prayer like I didn't. Have that restraint, the restraint to give it to God. Christ-likeness and restraint. And then Christ-likeness and humility. Again, we see over and over again, especially in the upper room and, um, and in the garden and then in the courtroom, in the courtyard, um, Peter's brashness and the promises that he just can't keep, his lack of humility, that he would think he could be the greatest. And his shame was only magnified by the level of his boast. First um, Peter chapter 5 and verses 5 and 6 is where Peter says, God resists the proud. He resists the proud. He lifts up the humble. Christ-likeness in love. Um, and we see in John 13, where Peter was just sorely confused. He, it, there was that lack of etiquette. Um, whichever disciples the Lord Jesus um, told to set up the upper room had made a, an egregious error in not securing a servant to wash their feet. Uh, that's a total breach of etiquette, but they were going to let it slide because none of them wanted to do it. We read in one of the chronologies, literally on their way up to the upper room, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. They come in and there's no servant of low place. None of them are going to take it. They're just arguing about the greatest, providing their points one, you know, to each other. You know, Andrew, well, I don't think he's, he's not necessarily a boastful one, but he could have said, I brought that little boy to the Lord Jesus with the five loaves. and I brought him. At least I had faith to bring him. Right. And Peter thinking of all his all the things he could boast about. And, you know, maybe Judas, he trusts me with the money bag. Arguing about who's greatest, they get to the room and there's no servant to wash the feet. And lo and behold, who does it? The one that they're saying they're going to be the right hand to. Their king. And Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. Probably feeling shame now, you know, Peter feels those big emotions, feeling shame that he didn't think about doing this. And you, you won't wash my feet. And then Jesus says, I have nothing to do with you. And he goes the other extreme. Wash everything then. <laughs> you don't need that. And Jesus literally says, there's only one person in here who needs that, but he's not going to ask. Um, you know, speaking of Judas, you're not all clean, not all of you. Um, but that love that the that Jesus wanted Peter to have isn't that boastful kind of love 
isn't the songwriting kind of love, isn't the kind of love that makes these grandiose promises. It's love that serves. Love that serves. Um, later in John chapter 13 is where Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Jesus taught Peter compassion. Um, in Luke 22, verses 31 to 32, um, the Lord tells Peter that you're going to strengthen your brethren. That's where, where um, Jesus talks about how he's been praying for Peter because Satan asked specifically to sift him like wheat. And Jesus doesn't say, I prayed that it wouldn't happen. Jesus doesn't say that in, in Luke 22. I'll turn there so that I don't misquote it. Um, but in Luke 22, in verse 31, thinking about Peter, Peter probably wanted Jesus to say, I prayed for you and it's not going to happen. And it says, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon. He called him Simon twice there. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, not that it won't happen. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, when you come out the other side of this trial, of this sifting, Strengthen thy brethren. And think about then on the shore in John 21, the statements that he made. Here he says, when you get out the other side, strengthen your brethren. Where do we get strength from the sustenance? When we eat, what does is, what is Jesus ask Peter to do? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. And he's saying, we're, we're out the other side of this. Are you ready? Now it's time. Now you've learned your lessons. Strengthen the brethren. As he told him would happen in Luke 22. Peter would learn compassion. For the rest of his life, leading, leading people, he would need compassion. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 5, in verses 8 to 10, you see this compassion. It's when it comes to being tracked by the devil. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, Peter knew more than anybody. Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. You could say, I've, I've had it happen to me. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered for a while, make you perfect or complete, established, strengthened, 
and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He knew that the devil is out on the prowl for you and he may get his claws on you. And Peter knew he would not judge someone for going through a trial. Um, but that come out the other side and then you'll be an encouragement to others. And to have that kind of courage, um, John chapter 21, we know on the shore, Jesus told him, you'll die. You're going to die a martyr's death. You're going to die for me. And to know that going forward, not the kind of courage that causes you to take out a sword and go against the will of God and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, try to decapitate 400 soldiers. Not that, not that kind of courage, that false kind of courage, but the courage to go to stick to the truth, to stick to your faith, the courage to take your responsibilities as a citizen of heaven higher than any right you could claim as a citizen of anything on this earth, that kind of courage um, to go through knowing that your end is secure no matter what the powers in this world can do to you. Um, next week, this was Peter, you know, the apostle of, of big things, of big promises and big boasts, the leader. Um, the next time I come, we'll start um, with Andrew, who is known, his, the epithet on his is the, the apostle of little things. Um, so let's um, close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you um, for the examples that we have in these 12 men that you called apostles, that you sent out um, to being apostles. Lord, we thank you um, for the example of Peter. Uh, we can see um, how you molded his character. The man that we saw, we read about in the Gospels, uh, and the man who wrote First and Second Peter. Um, we can see those lessons parallel, the mistakes in the Gospels with the truths he points out in his epistles. Lord, we pray that as Peter, that we would learn from our mistakes and not get stuck um, and get entangled by the sin that wants to entangle us, but that we would um, break away and repent and move forward and learn the lessons that you would have us to learn, um, that we might be an encouragement to the brethren. Lord, we pray now um, that you would take us to our homes in safety. Um, we pray for those um, that we know that are sick and laid aside at this time, and we pray that you would strengthen them and their caretakers. Lord, again, we thank you for the examples we have in Scripture and your Holy Spirit that's in us that leads us to truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.